You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The first thing we found through studies was that the words people use when you talk about science are very positive words. Words like curiosity, discovery, optimism, youth, and then looking a little more deeply in how people talk about it, uh, it became very clear something fascinating was going on there, that, that for most Americans, they equate the word science with hope. In the last hundred years, something has changed. Our lives run on science now, and there's no going back. The food, the information we consume, the medications we take, they all depend on science to reach us and to get to us at a price we can afford. We want a pill or a discovery that will allow us to live, and we not only want it, we expect it. Even our money. There's a generation among us that doesn't carry cash, just a little piece of plastic that gets them everywhere. Do we realize how dependent we are on science? Do we understand what might happen to us if science suddenly stops or slows to a trickle? Chris Volpe wants to know how we feel about science. It's an important question, and it's one that needs a good answer if science is going to survive. Chris, I'm really glad to be talking to you today because I think about this all the time the relationship between our culture and science. And and it disturbs me a little bit. Funding is down for science, especially basic research. Vaccinations are down. Measles is up. The, the climate crisis is just a joke to a lot of people. What's, what's missing? What do we have to do? Well, Alan, it's, it's terrific to be here. Thank you. Um, there's a question of whether the challenge is a breakdown between society and science, or is, it, are, is science a collateral damage to a larger question, and that is issue of, um, of, of society and question institutions, just a fundamental growth in cynicism by Americans. So you mean all, all institutions tend to get questioned and downgraded in everyone's mind? Yeah, and there's, there's actually a lot of data to this. And so, if, for example, if you're in the media or you're a journalist, you're, you're really not happy right now because in the last 30 years, trust in journalists has, has dropped precipitously. Trust in banks and financial institutions has dropped precipitously. Let me go back for a second. You're engaged in a project called Science Counts. You're running it. What, what are you trying to find out? With, it's basically research to start with, right? What's your overall plan for Science Counts? 
Right. So, so Science Counts was created to bolster public support and awareness of science. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and uh, it became evident very quickly that that actually is too narrow a goal, that there are bigger things going on. And so our research was to try to answer even bigger questions in terms of, you know, where does science live in the psyche of ordinary Americans? Um, if I yell the word science on a crowded bus, what do people think? Will they all try to get <laughs> off? They might, or they might <laughs> lean in and listen. <laughs> Tell yeah. me more. Um, and, you know, and, and more importantly, what do people feel? Um, you know, what do they sense? Some very fundamental questions. So, and, what kind of answers did you get to those questions? Yeah, it's really interesting, and it was uh, it was a surprising, it was a bit jarring to some folks. Um, the first thing we found through studies was that the words people use when you talk about science are very positive words. Words like curiosity, discovery, optimism, youth, and then looking a little more deeply in how people talk about it. Uh, it became very clear something fascinating was going on there, that, that for most Americans, they equate the word science with hope. How did they get to hope? Right. So what we did was, we did, this was part of a national survey and then also focus groups where you bring small groups of people and you actually have conversations. Yeah. And over and over again, phrases like, science serves the greater good, or, um, you know, science is a path to a better tomorrow kept coming to the surface. Mm-hmm. And so it became very clear that for the people we were talking to, science was c- coupled to some desired outcome. Mm. It's very payoff-oriented. So you, you interpreted that as hope? That's right. And then we fed back. We asked them and said, yes, that's the word. That's it. That's I exactly see. what I'm I trying see. to capture. Yeah. yeah. So scientists and their work are associated with the word hope. What do you learn from that? What do you what do you do about that? How do you advance the mission of your your organization, Science Counts? I am part scientist and mm-hmm. I'm part marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for, in essence, for the brand of science to be hope is wonderful. You you couldn't pay enough money. That's a great place to be. We should be excited as scientists and and science advocates that the public look to science as delivering uh, delivering wonderful things and making the world a better place. Uh, The question is, how do you activate that? How do you make that sort of an abstract ideal to a real idea and to an idea where people can actually express that and get involved? It's one thing to sit in your living room and say, boy, I hope those scientists, you know, cure this or do that or discover this. Um, I think we're at a point culturally where we need people to stand up a little bit more um, and, and, and express that that's a priority. It's not just something they like, but it's a priority. One of the problems that's been expressed many times, which is basic research, research into the true unknown, where we don't, but we're finding out basic things about how nature works. It doesn't pay off with practical applications, sometimes for a hundred years, sometimes longer. Uh, Einstein's work a hundred years ago enabled us to have GPS in our phones and our pockets. Nobody knew that at the time, and if his was a big project, uh, would it have got funding because 100 years later you'd be able to do something that you didn't even know you needed? So isn't that a difficult situation in trying to get exploratory, curiosity-driven science funded? How do you do it? How do you go about it? Do you, do you, how, do you le- how do you use hope to do that? Fortunately— People seem to be willing to give us, the scientific community, a long 
leash, partially because of what you said, because to some degree, curiosity is good enough. Discovery is good enough. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we found is not that, that uh, a lot of Americans think that the government shouldn't fund or participate in science, um, but the, the misassumption that the role that, that the government, that we as taxpayers play is very minor. Um, we found that only one out of four Americans thinks that the role of government in science is necessary and pervasive. Really? Where, do, where do they think it comes from? Google, <laughs> Apple, <laughs> Elon Musk. Yeah. 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 Um, so in other words, if science is really worth it in some people's minds or many people's minds, if science is really something that we can regard as helpful and useful, then it ought to be making a profit and supporting itself. In many areas, and and that, it, in fact, the sense is that's what's going on today, that most of the scientific research, even basic research, is being done by big corporations and philanthropies and Elon Musk. Mm. And that's a name that came up a lot. And that's interesting. The, the problem is that's not reality. The problem yeah. is that the, the taxpayer, federal government, supports about 50% of all the basic research in the, the U.S. So there's a fundamental misunderstanding in terms of what's the tail and what's the dog mm -hmm. when it comes to doing this. Before we get to the question of what you're going to do with all this research, tell me some more about what you found out about how scientists regard their role in this. One of the things that we discovered was that it seems that scientists, there's sort of two camps when it comes to how they connect personally with science. Hmm. About a third of the scientists were comfortable with using the word hope. And then about a third of the scientists said joy and excitement. Yeah, well, I can understand that because they're doing something that they love. Yeah, that's right. The question, though, is if the public sort of gathers around hope, if right. the public is more payoff, I'll call it payoff-oriented, Yeah, um, and a large fraction of scientists are more process-oriented, which is what I would say. They love what they do. Yeah. Um, well, they're doing it. Exactly. Because yeah, they're a self-selected group, yeah. right? It really has to do with, all over again, what, what I know you propose all the time, and, and, and we do too, knowing your audience, knowing what they care about, whatever it is, and finding how what we do fits in with what they care about. But there's a very interesting, one of the most startling things I've heard come out of your research is the opposite of what we all, I think an awful lot of us tend to believe, which is the more people know about science, the more willing they are to accept some of the findings of science. I, I may not be putting it the way you put it. How would you say it? Yeah, that's an absolute phenomenon. And, and – um We've touched on it, and then there's some other work that's been done by others. I think really drove it home. Um, one researcher in particular at Yale, Dan Kahan, um, and his and his group, um, they found something really fascinating, and it really turned everything on its head in the scientific community. And that was, you know, th th there was the idea of what we call the science deficit model. In other words, take climate change for example. The reason that 40% or so of the population is having a hard time acknowledging that climate change, anthropogenic climate change is happening, is because they just don't know enough about the science. And so the solution would be if we could only teach them more science, if we could only turn them into us, they would reach the same conclusion. 
And so Dan and his team did a really neat survey, and they tested this. Not just climate change. They looked at multiple issues. And, and in a nutshell, what they found was that when you're talking about non-controversial issues, like, for example, if there's more sunlight, trees will grow taller, then it is true. The more you know about the science, the more you will agree with that statement. Mm. When it comes to these issues that we call controversial climate change, GMOs, vaccinations, in fact, it doesn't work that way at all. It seems that people reach a conclusion first, and then they use their science knowledge to defend that position mm. to the point in which those who knew the most science were most polarized. So by knowing more science... You had people on each end of the, the, the issue not agreeing more, but actually diverging more. It sounds like they were using their knowledge of science to defend a position that they knew was correct. So how do you handle that in a conversation? That's a difficult conversation to have. You have one set of ideas. They have a whole other set. How do you not sound like you're threatening their lives? You have to try to not threaten their lives. <laughs> <laughs> You have to try to find common ground, even if it's teeny and minuscule. I mean, you know, you've got to do it on a personal level. I guess that's the take-home point. Well, can you remember one conversation where you started kind of far apart and got a little closer? What, what, can you track that for me? Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick on climate. Let me see if I, So I have a neighbor who is wonderful at articulating his point. I wish I had his gift for communication. <laughs> and his we're talking about sea level rise. And uh, he summed it up his position by saying, um, I will believe in sea level rise when all those rich liberals start selling their beachfront property. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was stumped. I, I mean, how do you re re respond to that? There's a lot of those rich liberals already have a house up on a hill. <laughs> there you go. Those two. That's right. Colorado's getting expensive. And so I think part of it was not slapping back right yeah, away yeah, when he said yeah. that and sort of letting that get out there and then, you know, beginning to talk about it and, you know, identifying that the fact that there are a lot of people who aren't rich liberals on coastal areas who are threatened in southern Florida, coastal, uh, you know, uh, Virginia, Maryland, and at least with this one individual where I think we started getting a little bit of modification um, both of us, was the idea of prudence. Maybe we're sure. Maybe we're not sure. Maybe we can agree that we're not 100% sure. Um, but isn't the prudent thing to do to uh, keep studying and learning, but to the extent that we can, you know, begin, begin to, to prepare. Maybe, you know, be, begin to scale back. Be more right. careful. When we come back, Chris Volpe gives me some good news about what Science Counts research has discovered about the public's trust in science and the growing eagerness of a younger generation of scientists to share their work with the rest of us. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. 
All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Chris Volpe and what he calls my trillion-dollar question. How do you communicate with people who are so far apart from where you might be? If you say something that threatens their view of liberty or their view of what it means to be a a citizen in this country, you're hitting them at home. It's not even close to home. It's It's what part of their identity when you attack somebody's identity, I think it's very hard to, for them to trust you. Well, do, what do you do about that? That's the trillion-dollar question. I mean, that's what the field is trying to grapple with. I'm going to give you a short, just a short answer because I don't have a good answer. It's part of why I have a day job is to try to figure this out. But a word that I think is missing from our field is the word grace. We, we sometimes, as science scientists, and may, maybe some science communicators, but I think science communicators do a better job. We don't proceed as gracefully and as sensitively as we should because we don't recognize that we're really, as you said, potentially attacking people's core values, the reasons for being. If I say you're wrong about this issue, um, I'm not really saying I'm, you're wrong about that scientific issue. What I'm really saying is uh, you're wrong about caring about that thing. Mm-hmm. That is not really you're, about you're, science. Your your view is wrong. Your 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 entire outlook is wrong. When in fact, the essence of an empathic approach is what you were describing. Find out where they really are, what really matters to them, and can you agree with what really matters to them? This whole notion of trust seems to me to be really important. And and when you describe the public's reaction to science as being one um, consonant with hope, I think of how often I hear from people who are impatient with science because science can't make up its mind, they say. First, they tell you wine is good for you. Then they tell you it's bad for you. Then they tell you a year later it's good for you again. Coffee, same thing. Coffee will cure all kinds of diseases. Caffeine is good. No, wait a minute. The stuff that's not so good in coffee, don't take it so much. So if they think science can't make up its mind because they don't practice science, they don't realize science is not in the job of giving you the absolute answer about anything but to keep making progress and understanding how the complexity of nature fits all its parts together. 
my guess is you'll never get the total final answer to that. But that adventure spins off so much good to the rest of us that we can call it hopeful. But there's this impatience and lack of trust that comes with unfamiliarity with the scientific process. What can we do about that? Yeah, so so the great news is that the public broadly really trusts scientists. Mm. In fact, they're one of the few groups of professionals that trust hasn't eroded over the last 30 years. And, and, and over 30 years is not my organization. There's uh, Pew Research and the National Research uh, Board have studied that for 30 years. So that's great news. That is good news. But it reminds me of the idea that I've heard from some scientists, not, not an awful lot. I think a lot of scientists see the advantage in communicating well with the public. But I've heard from some scientists, that's not my job. I've heard my job is to do the science, to get results, not sell the results to anybody, just let everybody know what the results were, let them make up their own minds, let science take could take it to the next step. Do you see much resistance? Do you see scientists resisting the idea that they're being asked to convince people of their science when they feel, in fact, their job is to present the data which ought to convince people on its own? I mean, there is a valid idea that if you add selling pressures to your data, you might be doing science a disservice. Yeah, certainly the word sell is a mm. sensitive word. Uh, but in the survey we just did with the Alda Center, it was clear that scientists want to share their work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, I mean, to the point in which I would say the scientists who sort of want the door shut, and to let, you know, curmudgeon, let, let me do my work, that's what mm. I'm doing, and, you know, I publish the paper and let other people read it. Uh, they're in the minority, and and it's certainly in the minority. The younger generation, students and postdoctoral researchers and assistant professors, there's tremendous energy for wanting to get out there and and share the results. Um, and, and that's great news. Um, I would say personally that if a scientist doesn't want to engage with the public, if they're independently wealthy and funding their own research, you know, that's their prerogative. But if mm. you, there's a social contract here. If you yeah. are receiving federal funds, and, and the vast majority of scientists do, and in part or in whole, I really do think that one of the culture changes that has to happen within the scientific community, and, I, and I'm not alone, I'm not the originator of this, but I'm on the bandwagon, is that you know, we, there's a social contract. We have an obligation to talk to the public, not necessarily to sell them on anything per se or, or to get them to change their minds on anything, but to just share what's going on, um, where, you know, that this is a valuable uh, exercise, this is a valuable endeavor. And, it, and when you include listening in that, having a conversation with the public, not just telling them in a one-way street kind of way, but actually hearing their reaction that can actually be beneficial not only to the public but to science itself, it seems to me. There's, there are efforts now that I'm aware of that I think are really interesting and really uh, doing uh, something along those lines where research scientists are in contact with people in the doctor's office that makes use of the research that's done and the products it produces. And then they get together with the community and all three of them talk about 
what the real effect on humans is of all this work and what their response to it is, what they need, what they were hoping for, what, what, how, whether they're satisfied or dissatisfied, and even just giving them data that they wouldn't get if they just stayed in their own imaginations but get real human responses. That's, that's an example, I think, of listening to the public. And there are, I'm sure, many other examples. I think it's critical, and um, one of the worst insults I was ever handed when I was graduating, I was a scientist, was I had someone, uh, an entrepreneur, tell me that he thought I was a natural marketer, and I was deeply offended by that. I, I So, well, that marketing is like selling. It's a loaded word. Well, that's how I interpreted it. The whole point of being a scientist was I didn't want to, at the time, soil myself with such, you know, <laughs> right. trivial and... So how do you see marketing now, now that you don't feel soiled yeah, anymore? So it took me about five years to figure it out because after I graduated, um, I went into, I became a little bit of an entrepreneur. So I, I had the school of hard knocks and I realized what he was saying. Um, you know, marketing, for most people, marketing is synonymous with advertising. And that's only a thin little sliver of marketing. The full, marketing is a life cycle and it goes like this. First step one, observe and listen. Step two, assess a need. Step three, come up with a service or, or a product to address that need. Create it. Step four, deliver it. And step five, see how it went. Go back to the beginning. Now, as a scientist, that sounds really familiar to me. Uh-huh. Kind of observe, come up with an idea, do an experiment, and then go back to the beginning. Sounds like the scientific method. It's very synonymous. And I think, to your point, that first step is not thinking or doing. It's listening and mm. observing. And that's something I think we could capture. Um, and I know the word marketing is a, you know, is a loaded word, certainly in science. And Have you okay. ever thought of turn... changing the word to something it else? It might be a smart idea. I think, I think <laughs> listen and observe is, is, and assess is probably good enough. <laughs> so now let me get back to my question I asked you a while back. After you've completed the research that you've embarked on, where you're figuring out how the public regards science and how science regards the public and and so on, do you have an end game in in mind? Do you have a plan to do something to help remedy the the disproportionate relationship, the, the poor relationship that still exists in terms of science and the public? How do, we, how do we bring them together? How do we get them to share a common view of science that benefits science and benefits the people both? So I'm going to put the burden on scientists first, just as the experts in that relationship. And that is, um, as much as one wants to talk about the details and the process, as I said, you've got to start with the benefit. You've got to start with the outcome. You've got to give some contextual um, explanation of why should this matter to me. And so those first couple of sentences um, need to be, here's why this matters to you, or here's why you should care. And very often, if you do that well, it's been my observation that you're, the person you're talking to is actually going to ask you to get into more details. They'll prompt you to have that conversation. So it's not as much one way. It's more of a dialogue and a conversation. There's something else that occurs to me that I wonder if you take into account, there's something communicated by the way the scientist is lit up, illuminated by 
the excitement of the work. This amazing thing I discovered about this little worm. It's, it's, it's so tiny, you, can, you can't see it without a microscope, and yet some of the secret of longevity is in this worm. That's fascinating. That affect, that attitude that can be expressed, sometimes better by some people than by others, but all of us can learn to express what we feel about the things that mean a lot to us, like the, the, the thrill of discovery. That is not an argument. It's not words. It's you being able to observe in me what gets me going. And you, it might be contagious to you. Is there a way to discover how effective that is? Can you research that? Uh, you can. Uh, I'm willing to take it for granted. I mean, I, I think enthusiasm is infectious. That is a big, big part, um, a big advantage, frankly, that the scientists have um, because most scientists are very excited about what they do and they're, exi they're excited, excited to, to share. Uh, and, th and that's the key. It, th there's an old saying, uh, this is going back to that dirty word marketing again, but uh, it's, I think it's so fundamental. And I know it's the core to, the, to, the, um, to what the, the, all the center does. Um, human beings, we're not thinking beings that feel. We are feeling beings that think. Huh. And too often the word emotion is sort of a sacrilege word among scientists, certainly physical scientists, natural scientists. Social scientists are much more comfortable with that. And, and in a way, they have a leg up in terms of bridging the gap between um, you know, themselves and the public. And so I think you know, we, all, we have to recognize the emotional content of any conversation. And to the extent that it's positive, ride it. That's how you connect with people. Well, to that I would say amen. Let me, uh, let me uh, close our conversation by asking you our seven quick questions. You know about this? We ask, we ask everybody these seven questions, and they're not threatening, so don't, don't look so scared. <laughs> but they invite seven quick answers, and they're roughly about communicating and relating. Okay, first one, what do you wish you really understood? Um, I wish I knew more about – I wish I knew more about mathematics. And I wish I appreciated mathematics, not arithmetic, but the higher mathematics from a language point of view. Yeah, I, um, I shared that with you. What do you wish other people understood about you? So I struggle with the English language, and the tragedy is it's the only language I speak. <laughs> so, um, I, and that's a genetic thing. It runs on my father's side of the family, um, and we're hoping that gene eventually dilutes out in a couple more generations. But sometimes words... The right word doesn't quite come out, and so sometimes I... What, is this a, a condition with a name? I, I, have, I have face blindness. Do you have a name for what you've got there? I, I don't. I, I haven't had it diagnosed. I figured one way or another I'm stuck with it, so why pay a doctor? Very interesting. Well, well that's not a short answer, but it was an interesting one. Thank you. <laughs> so, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, all right, so this one's a guilty pleasure. The strangest question was, uh, uh, son, are you making chlorine again? <laughs> and I, what? What? I feel like I'm obliged to provide some background. So I was a chemist, uh, and I, I learned a lot in high school in my, in my parents' basement fiddling around. And for a reason I can't remember, I wanted to make chlorine gas, which is not a particularly good substance. I had to be careful. And uh, I accidentally made too much. And it... Uh, uh, 
ended up with a face full of chlorine gas, which I can tell you is is not very pleasant. I don't recommend it. It basically burns your skin. It's very corrosive. And you were asked, are you producing this again? <laughs> Why would you make it a second time? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so I, I, I guess I filled the, the ventilation system of my parents' house with this. And my father, who was uh, a chemist also, was watching, I think, the A-team. And instead of getting up and seeing what he just yelled, you know, are you making chlorine again? And I, I grew up with the Adams family, so I felt that that was our Adams family moment. I felt like, all right, we. Well, I hope we haven't just put a spike in the heart of science to <laughs> this fabulous anecdote. <laughs> Next question: How do you stop a compulsive talker? Hmm. So uh, I would say I don't have a proven method, but I would say if you're in a room where you've identified another. Compulsive talker, maybe try to match them. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's, that's, I haven't heard that one before. That's a good one. I'll stop that with that one. I think that's probably the best shot. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Yes, absolutely. Um, it is a, is a human weakness. Um, boy, people who cut line... That just gets under my skin. <laughs> you don't I care just, what's going through their mind. No, I mean, you can usually tell if it's a genuine emergency, and for that I'm forgiven. But there's just some folks who just play by a different set of rules, and that just that bothers my sense of civilization and order. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> well, like would be as far away as possible, I think. But this is one of those questions where the right thing to do is usually the hard thing to do, a uh, lesson I learned as a child. So I wouldn't like, but I would probably do it in person just because that being the hardest thing to do, it probably is the right thing to do. Okay. Last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? I was thinking words dishonesty and you know, selfishness. If you determine, if you find out that you're being taken advantage of, mm. um, and you realize there's no friendship, then it's there's nothing to end. You just walk away. Well, don't walk away from our conversation without my thanking you. And I hope that we uh, continue along the path of this friendship that's starting. Thanks for coming in and talking with me. Thank you, Alan. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Chris Volpe is the executive director and a founding board member at Science Counts, which is a nonprofit organization that works to strengthen our nations and our personal commitment to science. Science Counts provides resources and research that help to promote the immense good that scientists do for us. After all, behind the word science, you'll always find real people, people who are working hard each day to find solutions and answers to some of the most complex problems imaginable. They give me hope every day, and I'm in constant awe of the wonder, the value, the good of science, and the dedicated people who keep searching. To find out more about Science Counts and their recent initiatives, or to get involved, please visit sciencecounts.org. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin, 
and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Hope Jaron. Hope is a scientist and writer who has such a knack for communicating, she convinces me, at least, that I have more in common with that plant over there than I thought I did. The reality is that plants do all the same things we do. You know, they grow, they get sick, they heal from sickness, they have offspring, they reproduce, they store against future bad times. They do all the things we do. They, they just do them very differently than we do. We're kind of stuck in a different world from them. And so a big part of studying plants well is spending a lot of time imagining. Just imagine with Hope Jaron and me next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.